Well, today we begin a new series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me now. 1 Samuel, and it can be found on page 225 in the Black Bibles, if you're using those Bibles right in front of you. There's so many famous stories that come from 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, originally, 1 and 2 Samuel were one book, but throughout time, it came to be known as 1 and then 2 Samuel, just due to length. But uh, you, you know these famous stories, right? You know David and Goliath, right? That comes from 1 Samuel. You can think of David's uh, his adultery with Bathsheba, right? That comes from 2 Samuel. I, and I'm sure you guys know more and more stories. And there is a lot of real-life drama in these books. So you have, right, family infighting, as you see from Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to see that. Um, you have people, the, the people of God, Israel, getting their first king, right? King Saul. And then you have God giving them a good king, a better king, in King David, a man after God's very own heart. And really, if you're looking for an outline of the entire, those two books of First and Second Samuel, you have it right there. First uh, Samuel, or Samuel, is named after the first character in the book. Uh, probably not the author, but uh, the first character. So you got Samuel, and then you have King Saul, and then you have the reign of King David. So you have Samuel, you have Saul, and then, the, then you have the reign of King David. But in this book, we see that God is setting up Israel's monarchy. God is setting up Israel's monarchy. And while God is setting up the monarchy in these books, you have the big picture things going on regarding God's larger plan of redemption. Okay, So you have maybe the books of First and Second Samuel, God establishing the monarchy. And then if we were to go up to maybe like a 20,000 foot view, we would see God's larger plan of redemption history. So it's not just important as we dive into this history book. It's not just important to understand the history contained in 1 Samuel. You've got to understand 1 Samuel in relation to prophecy. You have to understand 1 Samuel in relation to prophecy. And we do that by understanding 1 Samuel in its place in the broader context of the Old Testament. So in Genesis chapter 17, God had already promised that kings would come from Abraham's line. And so here you see in 1 Samuel, you see God fulfilling his very own promise. And then you want to back up, you want to go up even to like a 30,000 foot view, right? And understand 1 Samuel in relation to the whole entire Bible. So when God sets up the monarchy, the king over his people, well, who should we be thinking about? It's not just Saul. It's not just David. It's ultimately Jesus Christ, the king, his anointed, his Messiah. So no wonder that when Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament, the writers, of, uh, the writers of the New Testament say that the Psalms have been fulfilled. And, then, and also, Christ comes, he says, one greater than King Solomon is here. Well, what exactly does that mean? That's seeking to understand First and Second Samuel in light of the larger, bigger picture of salvation history. We understand it as prophecy. So with that big, big picture in mind, let's turn to the beginning of the book and turn our focus to the circumstances of this man this priest named samuel's birth and it is a beautiful introduction as we see god not only involved in big picture stuff right bringing about the savior bringing up kings but also intimately acquainted with the sufferings of his people and that's that's much of what a genesis is about right if you know genesis which we preached through recently here first samuel starts off in many of the same ways we see him not only doing the big stuff, but we see him intimately acquainted with the sufferings of his people, working out his plan of salvation in the midst of them. 
Our passage today is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going all the way through 2.11. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and see the circumstances of a woman named Hannah. The circumstances of a woman named Hannah. Keep in mind, eventually we're going to see that this is Samuel's mother, but we, we are dropped into a story about this woman named Hannah. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'll read that. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, the Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we see already the first two verses, Hannah is in a difficult position here. I mean, you have her underneath the leadership of Elkanah, the husband, who had already abandoned God's created order for marriage, right? In marriage, he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, one being married to one, one man being married to one woman. And here he's abandoning that, and he had taken for himself two wives, Hannah being the first, it seems, and then Penina being the second. Now, while there, there is no specific verse condemning polygamy, Let's be clear here. The Bible nowhere commends polygamy. And furthermore, the stories where polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament, let's say Abraham, he's taking two wives, Sarah and Hagar, initially. There you, and then you have David taking on multiple wives. And then you have Solomon taking on multiple wives and concubines. All of those stories and the story here speak about the sinfulness of man. So there should be a shadow cast on the taking of multiple wives here. That is polygamy, and it's cast in a negative light, okay? So here we see Elkanah is taking two wives. The situation is not good. And what makes Hannah's situation all the more discouraging is that she had no children. But the other wife did. So you see, it gets complicated here. Some of you guys know the difficulty of what it looks like to try to have children and then to continue waiting on it. I mean, imagine that situation, the difficulty, which some of you know, then is magnified by, in front of you, there is another wife who does have children. So you can imagine the conflict that's coming, right? You can imagine the jealousy between the wives, the covetousness, the spitefulness, and possibly, as we know, men are often to do the abdication on the husband's part, and this is indeed coming. But in general, this cloud of conflict and difficulty shouldn't surprise us. The reason why is because 1 Samuel takes place in the period of the judges. It takes place in the period of the judges. And here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, we think it's around 1100 B.C., which was a period where, as Judges 21-25 says, there was no king over Israel. So imagine no leadership. Imagine no law of God. And it goes on to say, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there is no law of God, there is no rule, and there is no king. And already there in Judges, they say that they desire a king over them, even though God was supposed to be their king. So they're rejecting God as king. And so when we are beginning for Samuel, you should and you ought to think that the chaos that's going to ensue, that we even see happening in, first, in, the, in the first chapter, is unfortunately par for the course for the sinfulness of man in the period of the Judges. As the passage goes on, we see Hannah's family members causing the suffering and then Hannah enduring great suffering. Uh, it's just a woman. This is just a family in the back hill country of this place that we don't exactly know where it is today. Ramathaim, Zophim. You look there at verses 3 to 6 and you see how much more complicated this gets. 
Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here again, we are dropped into the story of suffering. Really, particularly of Hannah's suffering. The family goes to Shiloh, which is 30 miles north of uh, Jerusalem, or sorry, Bethlehem. Shiloh was a central place of Israelite worship before the temple had been built. Shiloh gets destroyed in the book of Samuel. Eventually, the temple is built in Jerusalem. But here the, fi- the, the family goes to Shiloh to sacrifice and then also to have a family feast. We don't really know what uh, sacrifice or, you know, was this associated with uh, the feast specifically um, given in the law in the Pentateuch. You know, we're not entirely sure. But nevertheless, they are going there to sacrifice, to worship, and to have a, fam- to have a family feast. And we can imagine the scene. Even though Hannah gets a double portion, the difficulty of barrenness is too much to bear. And in that situation, no one is going to want to eat when right in front of you or right next to you is Panina and her children playing, laughing, eating. I mean, right there in front of her are reminders of everything that she is not. Not able to have children, not fruitful And Penina, what makes it worse, bullies Hannah about this. I mean, look what she does there in verses 6 and 7. Let's just uh, look again at this. And her rival used to provoke her. So that's the what she is doing. She's provoking. Interesting here, Penina is not even mentioned anymore. She just called her rival. What What is she doing? She's provoking her grievously to irritate her. She's rubbing in the fact that Hannah can't have children. I mean, we don't exactly know what she's doing, but just imagine. I mean, you know your own sinful hearts, what you might do uh, to spite somebody else. Maybe she's talking with, uh, with uh, Hannah about what her children have done. Maybe she's mentioning, uh, you know, telling them to go ahead and sit on Elkanah's lap where they will experience favor. Maybe she's talking to uh, Hannah about Elkanah's love for her children. We don't exactly know what's going on, but nevertheless, she is provoking her and did you notice when she does this not only is she doing it but did you notice when she's doing this when she is tormenting her it says there as often as she went up to the house of the lord at least this is yearly and the family's on their way to worship god i mean i'm just imagining coming to church right and your rival seizes the opportunity to cut you down How does she do this? She does this by using the sovereignty of the Lord against her. You see Penina's heart, right? She takes, she lives very much in the, in the times of the judges. And you ought to think that her sort of uh, piranha like nature, her character is fitting for the times of the judges because Hannah is contrasted with her. She's using the sovereignty of the Lord against Hannah, right? Notice that it says that the Lord closed her womb. And Penina, the goddess of her own house, seizes the sovereign, sovereign God and uses God and his actions as a weapon for her own domination. 
instead of preaching the sovereignty of God as comfort to a suffering woman. You know, if you've ever experienced suffering, you may have asked the question, why God? Maybe in your lack of faith, you might doubt God's goodness and love for you. I mean, imagine there being in that fragile state, then hearing the torments of Penina, which no doubt would have cast more shadows on the character of God and his care for you in your own weakness. No wonder it says there that she would not eat. There in verse 7, she wept and she would not eat. I mean, do you feel for Hannah here? We're certainly meant to. You know, her name means grace. It's something that she would need, whether in dealing with Penina, who purposefully wants to tear her down, or even in dealing with her very own husband. You look there in verse 8, look what he says. uh, With all the genius of manhood, which I am part of, he says there in verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, not only is the man offering a solution in the midst of her deep suffering, did you notice who his solution is? It's himself. Elkanah apparently sees himself as a stand-in for the sovereign Savior. The answer to her weeping, I mean, just, just, you, you just imagine, right? If he were godly, he would say, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat with all the compassion God-given compassion and grace and mercy and understanding. And why is your heart sad? He should have said, you know, go to God. He is your refuge, your portion. He is your fortress. But instead he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? This is sad. I mean, you see the two characters here. The period of the judges. You have Elkanah, a stand-in for the sovereign God, apparently. And then you have Penina, who uses the sovereign God against Hannah. We just wish that they would have comforted her by pointing her to the fact that God is not only sovereign, but a God who has been with his people and is with her. Well, in these circumstances, Hannah's heart was sad. We witness her weeping. We witness her in distress, feeling the deep sting of suffering. I mean, maybe you feel the sting of suffering in your present situation and maybe... Your own sadness and bitter weeping, you know, is very similar to Hannah's. And in 1 Samuel 1, as you read these verses, you feel helpless. If that's you, one thing to remember, something to remember as we look at Hannah's life, is, friends, your life and Hannah's life are not to be lived in isolation from God and what he has done in the past. Right? If we're tempted just to focus on these few verses here, we might think, this is so helpless, just as we might look at our situation right now and think it is helpless. But our lives are not to be lived in a disconnect with what God has done in the past. So if you isolate Hannah's life or our lives from God and what he's done in the past, you have absolute reason to be helpless if this is all that there is. But we know how our sovereign and loving God has worked in the past from God's word. And from Hannah, we know that she is enrolled, as one uh, commentator put it, she is enrolled in the fellowship of the barren. She's enrolled in the fellowship of the barren. Now, we might think that that seems like a group of cursed women. But in reality, according to scripture, they are actually a group of blessed women. 
You think of Abraham's wife in Genesis chapters 11 to 21. She is barren. You remember that God draws near to his people. He calls Abraham out of Ur and he says, look, I'm going to bless you just all because of my own sovereign choice. I'm going to make you into a nation. He says there, you're going to have many people coming from your line and one from your line is going to go on and bless the entire world. He says, also, I'm going to give you a land, right? Those are the promises to Abraham and Sarah, but Sarah is barren, right? So the one thing that God promises to do for them all hinges on the thing that Abraham and Sarah cannot do. And so she is helpless. And then you have Abraham's offspring. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah have children. Eventually, uh, they have Isaac. And then Isaac marries Rebecca. And Rebecca, who is barren. And then eventually, God answers. He is with his people in their suffering. Isaac and Rebecca, they eventually have children. And eventually, Jacob comes along and he marries Rachel. And Rachel, too, is barren. Friends, you know that in every single one of those situations, those couples, those gals are brought to the brink of their inability, their incapacity, and their powerlessness in order that they would see God's ability, God's capacity, and God's power. And of course they would, right? Of course they would. God's grace of promise, keep in mind that's land, that's seed, that's blessing, and monarchy, and a monarch to come from their line. God's grace of promise is always accompanied by his grace in fulfillment. Always God's grace of promise is always accompanied by his grace in fulfillment. And they had a promise. Of course, you got to ask the question. Well, what causes God to fulfill his promises? Can we force God to fulfill his promises? The answer so clearly is no. God's grace of promise is accompanied by his grace in fulfillment. Every one of those couples and Hannah here too, needed to learn to rely on their sovereign and good God. As one has written, their suffering and despair turned out to be a prelude to a mighty work of God. Now, when it comes for us today, friends, God is not promising to remove infertility. He's not promising to remove all suffering or remove death from his people. That's something that we need to be really clear, right? So God is going to use Hannah in a very unique way. There is only one Samuel, the king maker who anoints eventually Saul and also anoints David, right? There's only one Samuel according to God's salvation plan of history, at least the Samuel here in this text. And he's going to be used in a unique way. The application for us, though, is the same in that with God, our own suffering and despair, no matter what kind, infertility, loss of a loved one, persecution, can also turn out to be a prelude to a mighty work of God in our lives and the lives of others who walk, watch us. So, but, but let me define here a mighty work of God. I'm going to define it here as uh, where God is seen and acknowledged to be who he alone is. That's how I'm going to define mighty work of God. It is where God is seen and acknowledged to be who he alone is. The sovereign savior who alone is able the one who satisfies his people in the deepest, darkest times of our suffering, the one who is our refuge in times of trouble. Even though we are so moved, we will ultimately not be moved because we are rooted in Christ the rock. He is the one whom we can trust in, upon whom we can rely. So in the moments, friends, of your suffering, when you seem to be shifting so far away from where you once were, here God intends us to be rooted in Christ the King, so that he might be seen and acknowledged to be who he alone is. 
the one who we can trust in. And I love, you know, hearing the case testimony from last Sunday night. I'm still thinking about it. Uh, and and uh, the transcript is up online, and I'm, I understand that somebody even recorded so eventually it'll be up online. But as we got the opportunity to hear about Nikkei's suffering, real dark, sometimes dark suffering that was very psalm-like, we see, too, that what her ultimate hope in is in Jesus Christ and not ultimately in ourselves. That's what all these couples come to realize. And, friends, that's what we, too, can come to realize even in the midst of infertility or suffering, or death, or persecution. The challenge, though, is sometimes we forget that He alone is He who is uh, alone who He is. But yet our God is kind in our forgetfulness, in our inability. It is there that He often makes His starting point, as another one has written. He goes on, this commentator goes on to say, Our hopelessness... And our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he likes to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. He goes on to say, once we see where God often begins we will understand how we may be encouraged. We have every reason to think that Hannah possesses this deep, deep awareness of who God is and what He will do in the next chapter of her own life and then in the life of Israel, which is why she goes, she makes a beeline to the Lord, her sanctuary. This brings us to point number two. Point number one, we're just going, going according to the text, right? Point number one was... Uh, Hannah's circumstances. Point number two here is Hannah's sanctuary. Hannah's sanctuary. Look there in verses 9 to 11. It says, Thereafter they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We see that the Lord is Hannah's sanctuary. The Lord is Hannah's sanctuary. And we see this once again by the fact that she goes directly to the Lord in prayer, right? Note who she prays to. Note who she prays to. And we're going to see why God is her sanctuary. She prays to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. This title communicates God's power and the fact that the Lord is her creator, the creator, actually, of the whole entire universe. The hosts in the Old Testament can refer to God's angels, so to speak. So you think of the Lord and behind him stand all of his hosts, his heavenly hosts. The hosts also refer to the stars in the created realms, really representing everything in the created realm. And then not only that, though, but the hosts can also refer to people in his earthly realm. So the whole entire universe is, is, a, is referenced here when he says the Lord of hosts. And so when she pleads to the Lord, she's pleading to the sovereign creator over all. It doesn't make sense to, remember, it doesn't make sense to understand 1 Samuel by itself. We want to understand 1 Samuel in light of Genesis, in light of all of the, the scripture that has come before where God the Lord speaks and things come into creation. He is Lord over them all by the fact that he has made everything. He owns everything. 
He is, in fact, the Lord, the sovereign creator. But he's not only God, the sovereign creator over all things. She also says that he's a God who remembers. Look at what she prays. We look at who she prays. Now we're looking at what she prayed. The Lord is the Lord who looks on affliction. And the implication is that God remembers and does not forget his servant. Now, don't, when he says there remembers, don't think that God has a faulty memory. Think that God has made promises to his particular people. That is the people that, that came from Abraham. That is his, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. He is the God of the covenant. He established a covenant with his people all by his grace. And he always remembers. Even when uh, their physical line is at stake because they can't have babies. Is God going to forget? No, God comes alongside and he proves himself sovereign over all again and faithful to his covenant promises. Even when his people sin against him, is God going to be faithful? Yes. And so Hannah here prays so humbly to her sovereign creator that he would remember his very own promises, that he would be who he says he is. Lord over all, Lord of his purposes, but then also Lord with her in her suffering. Notice to how she prays, how she prays. She prays with godliness. She submits to the Lord of all. And there the evidence is verse 11. Look there. The mentality that she prays with here is that everything she has, all the Lord gives her is the Lord's, right? She's submitting to a sovereign Lord. And so verse 11, she vows a vow. She offers back what she prays God would give. She offers back what she prays God would give for God's very purposes, right? So the baby here is consecrated to the Lord. Look there. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So the baby here, she's going to pray. And later on, we see that she consecrates this baby to the Lord for his purposes and his plans. And that's exactly what is meant when he says that, that when she says that no razor will touch his head. What she's referring to is something in the Old Testament uh, called a Nazarite vow where someone who is consecrated to the Lord, and really Samson <clears throat> was kind of the hero of the Nazarites, he too went undertook this vow uh, where he didn't shave, but he was consecrated. It was a symbol consecrated to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord. And here she goes on and says, all of his life. It's not just a certain point in time, but all of his life. So you see here the mentality that she has here. She's submitting herself to the Lord. All that she prays for, she's going to give back. With all of her life and the life of her soon-to-be child, she offers up all that she is and all that the Lord would give her. Now, we might think, we might think, right, as the story unfolds right here, this particular moment, we might think that this is just a mentality of some crazy woman, a desperate woman, um, you know, seeking to get something from God and therefore make strike a deal or something, as if God were her genie that she, that she uses to serve her very own ends and means. But in reality here, submitting to God, giving back what God had given her, that's just standard godliness. So uh, the people of God have always recognized this. Take the New Testament passage from Romans 12, 1 and 2. What, it speaks there of what our spiritual act of worship is. And Paul goes on to say, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifice, sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I think Hannah here understands what Paul is getting at. 
Hannah, though, is speaking specifically about her baby. Paul is saying all of life for the Christian, including our very own children. We present our very own selves as, as acts of worship, spiritual worship. So even though they're going to offer up a sacrifice here to God, like a physical sacrifice, we know that in Christ, he is our the final sacrifice. So that's why we're not offering sacrifices here, actual real blood sacrifice, because he has already offered himself up. Because of him, we are in Jesus Christ. And so we are to offer up our very own bodies. It's just standard godliness. Everything we have that God has given us, our very own selves, are to be given back to the Lord. Friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, this section here makes us wonder, uh, you know, does, is the sovereign Lord, can the sovereign Lord actually be a sanctuary for us? Can the sovereign Lord actually be a sanctuary security for us? I mean, oftentimes people think of a sovereign Lord as merely God over us. Maybe they go on to think that God is distant from us, that he doesn't really care about us. Or maybe they think of God as the creator that uh, just simply lays down his law and has no love for his people. But you can't come away from reading 1 Samuel chapter 1 thinking that God does not care. You read this and you think that Hannah knows without a shadow of a doubt that her Lord cares for her, which is why she goes to him in her suffering in the first place. You know, it is true that God has every single right to rule. He created once again, you know, he created everything, created us to be in a relationship with him. He owns us, but that's not bad. That's actually a really good thing because he knows what is best for us. He's the one who designed us. You would think that you would think that the designer knows what is best for the designed And actually, according to Scripture, he does. Given that all men have sinned against him, as it says that all of us have turned aside, we have followed our own ways, we have rejected and sinned against God by throwing off his sovereign rule, that's sin, we know too that God is a sovereign judge, right? He has a sovereign right to judge us. Ultimately, the Bible says that if he were to carry out this judgment to those who don't believe, this is going to land us facing him and with us being indicted with treason. That is setting up our own kingdom against the one and only true God, earning for ourselves just condemnation and hell. The wonderful thing, though, that just as God is sovereign, this sovereign Lord actually asks us to plead with him. It is a... Just think about the practical example of going before a judge who is sovereign, who has every right to judge you and throw you into jail and to throw the book at you. But you know that in his book, he says that he will free those who freely come to him. Why would we not plead God's very sovereign mercy if we are the ones who have sinned against him? God, in his word, says, yes, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest for your souls. He says that he is righteous and holy not only to judge, but to save and forgive. And so you have this invitation here in the word to actually plead his sovereign mercy for forgiveness. So friends, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me encourage you what Jesus to do what Jesus says. He says, repent of your sins and believe. And you will know the sovereign judge's mercy. You will know his grace. You will know his salvation. He has given sinners Jesus Christ to live the life we could not live and to die the death we should have, bearing the wrath that we deserved. And so he died on the cross for all the sins of those who would repent and believe. In his sovereign mercy. He says, look, I am sovereign, yes. And I want you, friend, to plead my sovereign mercy so that you would come to know 
my sovereign grace. It's wonderful here that Hannah knows that his that God's sovereignty is not something that keeps her at bay, but something that makes her run to Christ in prayer. And so she finds sanctuary security in the Lord himself. Before she meets with the Lord, right? She is weeping. She is refusing to eat. Her heart is sad. But then did you notice, right, what happens at the end there? Well, let's go ahead and notice it. Let's look at 12 to 18. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, right? She's praying. Eli's watching her. The priest is watching her. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Now, unfortunately here, her circumstances are going to get worse. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That is, you should read someone who doesn't follow God. For all along, I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grants you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. You know, again, we see that her security is in the Lord, right? It's not in her circumstances. When she was going up to the temple to worship, to have the family feast, right? It says that she shoved away food. She was praying. She was sad. And then after all this, after she meets with God, it says, then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So what changed then? She's still barren. She still has Panina, the piranha right in front of her. She's still underneath Elkanah, who seems to be insensitive. Friends, what has changed was that she met with the Lord and the Lord heard her. And this is, this is reflected in the fact that Eli, the high priest, says, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant you your petition. And she believed. Friends, her, uh, Hannah here is an encouragement to all of us. We all can find sanctuary in the Lord, particularly through prayer. Many of us, though, we find sanctuary in the circumstances that we pray God would change, don't we? So a question, right, for you, you know, do you find your refuge, your sanctuary in your circumstances or in God? Diagnostic question. Well, friends, you can look at your attitudes when you leave your prayer time. When you leave what Puritans used to call your prayer closet. If you pray, if we pray to God to get what we want, selfishly want, we're going to leave our prayer time sad. We're going to leave despairing. We're going to leave hopeless. And then, friends, it's only a matter of time before we abandon prayer altogether because it won't appear that God is with us because our circumstances might not change. God doesn't promise to change our circumstances. But if we pray out of a need for God himself in the midst of our suffering, then we'll leave as Hannah did. Our circumstances might not necessarily change, but yet we will trust in the sovereign Lord, his goodness, his love for us, his care for us, the fact that he is with us, regardless what his will is for our lives, whether he will call us to live, walk the path of Christ's suffering, whether he'll call us to live the life of no suffering. Friends, prayer is not primarily intended to get us what we selfishly want. 
but to show us who we truly need. Hannah knows that she needs the Lord. We've looked at Hannah's circumstances. We've looked at Hannah's sanctuary. Now we come to point number three, Hannah's son, Samuel. Hannah's son, Samuel. Uh, Let's look at those next verses there. Uh, Just continue to skim there. If you look at 19 to 20, you'll see that, uh, you know, they get up, they, they go home. Verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. And the word Samuel here, he's not, in, not getting at the root of the word based on the, the etymology of the word, the actual word itself. But what it sounds like, she names him Samuel, for she said, I have asked from, for him from the Lord. And some of your footnotes might direct you down there. Samuel sounds like Hebrew for heard of God. So you get this aspect of, of, of her entering in. She's making her plea or petition, and the Lord hears and answers. In verses 21 to 27... Uh, you know, they, they just continue to skim there. Elkanah and others, you know, the family return again for the yearly sacrifice. But Hannah and Elkanah decide that Hannah will wait a little bit longer, not go up quite yet until the baby is weaned. That is that the baby is not breastfeeding anymore. And in that culture, it typically happened, let's say, around three years old when the baby could eat anything. There's no dietary uh, qualifications that need to be made. And so they agree that she would wait. At the right time, Hannah goes up and takes offerings for the Lord. Look there in 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. These are all offerings. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, is lent to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. So at the, at the right time here, what's going on is at the right time, Hannah takes up offerings to the Lord, which is pretty typical. You know, the Lord is Lord over all. All that the Lord gives, that you're supposed to give back. It was written in the law. And uh, here she's giving the fruit of produce from the land. Uh, the Lord had given them livestock, and so she is giving some back. But what is unique is Hannah's zeal in giving back the child that God had given her. Also, for a priest, right? It's actually pretty normal that the boy would be that a man would be given to the Lord. But what is unique is that is Hannah's zeal in giving the child back to God. Once again, speaking to Eli, the high priest, Hannah says in twenty-seven, "Look there, for this child I prayed." Again, you have the emphasis on this asking. This asking, right? And then the Lord answering. For this child I prayed, and the Lord had granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, when you look at lent, don't think, hey, I'm going to let God borrow my son. Borrow my son. Don't think that here. The word translated lent has the same root as petition. Pray, ask. So the emphasis is on asking of the Lord and then taking the thing that is asked for and then giving it back to the Lord. That's the emphasis here. So a rough translation offered is for this child, I prayed and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what I asked to Yahweh all the days he lives. He is the one that is asked for Yahweh. You hear this language of asking God, answering And then her committing, think back to the vow, and this beautiful conclusion in the scene in verse 28 there, and he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. 
you know, in light of all the babies going to be born or have been born, you know, we talk about cosmos. Uh, this here is instructive to us. It gets us to check what types of things that we're praying for for our children in particular. It certainly does us. You know, all the Lord gives is, is His, right? So we want to think about ourselves, but in particular for children. You know, if all that we're praying for is that our children will be healthy and successful and uh, secondarily that they might love God, something is seriously wrong with our understanding of God. We are more like Panina than we realize, trying to use the sovereignty of God to get what we want. We are more like Elkanah than we realize, because as we want for our own children, it is as if we are their own saviors, having the best plans for their lives. There was no Lord over Israel at the time, and we act as if there is no Lord or King over our own lives, over our very own families. But with Hannah, what encourages me as I read First Samuel chapter one is not only, not only uh, is God intimately acquainted with her suffering and our suffering, even that can be used for to fulfill our own selfish ends. But that Hannah is intimately acquainted with her sovereign Lord, is she not? Which is why she prays the very thing she does. She knows God is intimately involved in her suffering, which is why she prays. She knows that she, we know that she is intimately acquainted with her sovereign God, which is why she prays what she does. Lord, take everything I have. I genuinely pray for this thing. And Lord, if, if I receive it, he is yours. So encouragement here for you guys in light of what's going on in the church. Babies, babies, babies. Let me encourage you to pray God's purposes over your children. And for those of you who are church members, if you're going through the membership directory and praying for the children of the church members, let me encourage you to pray God's purposes over other children. The children that you serve in for church for a nursery here. Pray that God would open their eyes and save them. Pray that God would use them for the spread of the gospel to all nations, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Pray that through these children and their salvation, that God would be seen and acknowledged to be who he alone is, the sovereign savior of sinners. God, help us if our prayers for our kids would forever be make them well adjusted, make them well educated, make them competent children, keep them healthy children. Because while that might reflect your grand sweeping plans for your family, it might not necessarily have anything to do with God's sovereign plan to exalt Jesus Christ and to display his glory of salvation through the church. We want to pray with godliness, as she does, as Hannah does, in submission to the sovereign Lord, offering up everything we pray for back to God. And in so doing, we seek sanctuary in the sovereign Lord. That's where sanctuary and security is. Friends, you do not want to pray your own will for your children. Because if you know your own self well enough even if you look good on the outside, even if you're a moralist on the outside, that, friends, you might know that just as the Bible reveals that you are morally bankrupt. And the only one who can save, the only, who's, the only one whose will we can trust is the sovereign Lord over all. This introduction is a bit of a surprising one given it's a, a book about Israel's monarchy. This is a story about the Lord begin, being intimately acquainted with his people's suffering as well as walking with them in despair. And that leads then to the monarchy. It's an interesting introduction to the monarchy. Uh, but, but it is, as I mentioned earlier, it is also about 
Hannah, who is intimately acquainted with her sovereign Lord, who is going to bring about his plans and purposes for his people. And this brings us to Hannah's psalm. So you see, keep in mind, let me just repeat that. It sounded a little bit confusing, at least as I just said it to myself. Um, You have Hannah, who knows that God is intimately acquainted with her suffering. And then you see, too, and for the rest of the book, that God is not only working out his plan in this one family's life, but in his kingdom, that is Israel. And you see how the two are intimately related with one another in point number four, Hannah's psalm. You look there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll read that. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn, or strength, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are the Lord's. Pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. First, it's important to note that this is not a prayer that one might expect uh, a woman or man whose barrenness has now been reversed. Many might rejoice in personally, right, personally getting to experience parenthood. It's not a bad thing to do that. They might rejoice in, in, in the opportunity to participate in creating life. They might rejoice in the fact that life is now growing in the mother's womb. Right? Those things aren't bad, but Hannah's prayer soars into the heavens where God makes his sanctuary. This is evidence, again, that, God, that she finds her sanctuary security in God. It soars into the heavens about who he is and what he is doing with his very sovereignty. This psalm, while reminding us of who God is, introduces us to many of the themes of the book of first and second samuel god's sovereignty and the reversal of fortunes god's sovereignty and the reversal of fortunes right so in relation to god's sovereignty right this is hannah's lord that she just met with at the temple in whom she exalts she says right my horn or my strength is exalted in the lord he is sovereign verses one to three if you skim those right there is none holy like the lord he stands alone he alone is the creator Verse 3, right? He alone has knowledge, infinite knowledge. Verses 6 and 7, God is the judge who determines the states of all men. Verse 8, right? He says there, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He possesses them. There you think of the establishment of the world and the moral order of the world. And you go on to see what God will do in his sovereignty. 
He is the great creator. He, he, he alone is a standard of morality and righteousness. He alone guards his people and judges the wicked. He says there that he will thunder against them and judge the, the earth till its very ends. And that's exactly what you see in the book. He's going to go on and do this amongst all of the people uh, that defy him and oppose his own people. So there you see his sovereignty, right? This woman knows that her God is the sovereign one. And you see the reversal of fortunes. Look at verse 4. The strong will be made weak. The weak are made strong in the Lord. The hungry will become full and the full will become hungry. The barren, right, that's her, have no children, but eventually they're going to boast in the number of their children. Verse 8, the lowly are brought high and given a place of honor. And then we see this too, right? We see the same things happening, this reversal of fortunes in the very book. This ragtag bunch of Israelites... These sinners who have indeed rebelled against God, they are formed into a monarchy, into a nation, with a king over them, as God gives them a place of honor among the nations. Right? You would expect that Hannah would rejoice about what's going to happen to her individually. Again, even if she did, that wouldn't necessarily be bad. But her prayer, her psalm of thanksgiving soars into the heavens, and it is so much more about God. It is about God working out in her own life, and in the kingdom, and in his entire plan of salvation history, God himself is working out his plan to lift up the needy and the weak, those who would find their sanctuary, their solace in him. So in Hannah's family, you see a little microcosm of what happens for all who repent of their sins and believe in him. For all of followers of the Lord, So as we move here to a conclusion here, God's dealings with Hannah and Samuel, once again, are a little microcosm of what what it looks like for God to work out his plans, swinging his sovereignty with full force for the benefit of his people and for his own glory. God was bringing about his plans in Hannah's little family. But again, there are implications in relation to God's larger plan of salvation. If you look at the last line there of Hannah's psalm, did you notice what God's sovereignty is moving towards? Look there, the last line of Hannah's psalm. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now get this. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Keep in mind here, Hannah's psalm is not just history. It's also prophecy. There is no king over Israel at this point in time. And there had not been, at least physical king. But God was moving in that direction, right? Through this priest, Samuel, God will eventually go on and install Saul, the first king, and then David, a man, the king after God's own heart. But then, of course, even if you back up to the 30,000-foot level, understanding 1 Samuel in light of the entire Bible, you know what these kings or who these kings point ultimately towards. Jesus Christ the true king. He is the true anointed one, the Messiah as it is in Hebrew, the Christ as it is in Greek, who would rule over his people and save them from their sins. Not only would be a man after God's own heart, as David is said to be, and we know that David failed, he is the God man where, so to speak, God's heart would be found. And in Christ, we see God's sovereignty worked on behalf of all of his people, as God placed the sins of those who would repent and believe upon him and then raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heaven, 
where he exercises authority, there you see the greatest reversal of fortunes, don't you? And for those in Christ who believe the gospel, you also see a reversal of fortunes as sinners are saved in the power of Jesus through his shed blood. All of this is found in the true king, the coming one. If you're looking at this point in time in in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the coming one's death and then in his resurrection and then in his own anointing as he was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand. This is why we read Mary's song earlier in Luke chapter 1. Go ahead and turn back there, Luke chapter 1. I love the fact that, I mean, I wish we had more time, you know, to uh, go through Hannah's psalm because it is such a beautiful psalm. Here you have a suffering woman, but just her prayers are soaring into the heavens about who God is and how she trusts in him. And it is that psalm that leads off uh, the formation of Israel under a monarchy And then here, if you go to Luke chapter 1, this is why we read it. You know, you have these matching psalms from women who might potentially suffer in their own unique ways. Uh, There might be some doubts and shadows cast around uh, the birth of their own children. But here, Mary is glorifying God. She is magnifying the Lord. That is, making large the Lord. Now, while Mary is unique in salvation history, there is only one mother of a Christ or the Christ. There is only one Christ. But this psalm, too, it speaks to us in unique ways for us today. So if you look there in verse, uh, if you look there in verse 50, right, this is to everybody. His mercy is for those, that is everybody who fears him from generation to generation. He goes on, he has shown strength with his arm in bringing about the fulfillment of his plans, right? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's exactly what he's going to do to the unbelieving of Israel and to the kings of the pagan world and exalted those of humble estate. You can think of all the parables and the stories of Jesus, how the weak go to Jesus and salvation is for them. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There you can expand it to spiritual Israel as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever not just physical israel but spiritual israel that is those who would trust in jesus christ the promises that he gave abraham are our promises one from his line that is jesus christ would come and be a blessing to the world 150 once again of of luke chapter one his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation and we saw hannah's circumstances we saw hannah's sanctuary we saw the lord answering giving hannah a son and samuel we saw Hannah's psalm. First Samuel is very much about a barren woman conceiving by the Lord's grace according to his plan. It's also about Israel receiving a king. But it's also a prelude to God's mighty work, specifically the work of salvation in Christ the King. And that's what we have to look forward to as we continue to go through the book of First Samuel. Let's pray together.